Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz tells us how to build a hands-off portfolio. Our ultimate stock pickers share their favorite stocks. Two IPOs catch the attention of our analysts. And Ben Johnson explains what it means when passive funds change their target indices. Let's get started. Here are Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. While day trading has made a comeback, many investors want just the opposite. They'd like to build a portfolio that could essentially run itself. Joining me today to discuss the virtues of hands-off investing and to share some ideas for how to build one of those portfolios is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hey, Christine, thank you for being here today. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. So it does seem like heavy trading is a little bit back in style today, um, but you've for a long time been an advocate for a more hands-off approach to investing. Tell us a little bit about why. Well, for one thing, you know, we hear about these behavioral biases that investors fall prey to, where perhaps they're excessively confident when the market's been robust as it's been, or in weak markets, they might become excessively loss averse. My view is that the less you're looking at your balance, the less you're doing that ongoing tinkering, the less likely it is that you'll fall prey to some of those behavioral traps. And then I would also say that even though I know plenty of older adults, plenty of retirees who really like to tinker with their portfolios and and like to watch their investments on an ongoing basis, we know that cognitive decline is a fact of life for some older adults. So I would say to the extent that you can build a portfolio that is streamlined and hands-off, it means that you're less likely to encounter a stumble if, for whatever reason, you are unable to manage your portfolio well on your own. So I think this becomes particularly important later in life. So let's talk a little bit about how to get there, how to get to that hands-off portfolio. What are the steps you should be taking? Well, the key step, in my view, is to have kind of a vision statement for your plan. So this might be an investment policy statement, for example, where you're spelling out how much you're contributing if you're still in the accumulation phase or or what your withdrawal rate is if you're in the withdrawal phase, what your general asset allocation parameters will be, what you're looking for in your investments. And importantly, you'll also spell out how often you will attend to your plan. And all of that should be outlined in your investment policy statement. Focus on creating something that's really quite streamlined. And that, in turn, I think will lend itself well to creating a streamlined investment plan if you have that streamlined investment policy. So now for people who are still saving, you suggest that the next step is to automate your contributions, right? Absolutely. We all know to the extent that we've contributed to a 401k plan, for example, we know how frictionless it is to make our contributions, to keep that money coming in each paycheck. I would say do that with as many accounts that you're able to. And the good news is if you're contributing to an IRA or a taxable brokerage account or a health savings account, you'll be able to turn on that automatic feature where you can have your contributions go directly into into the account straight out of your bank account. So turn that on, try to remove those friction Frictions And the advantage is in weak markets, you won't have that appetite to pull back. You, you probably will just 
uh, let inertia take over and let those contributions continue to flow in, which it turns out is a pretty great way to invest. Now, let's talk a little bit about things at the portfolio level. Um, what are some of the key investment types the hands-off investor should be considering? Right. I'm a big believer in all-in-one type funds. They're certainly not all good, but I would say that a good target date vehicle can be a, a tremendous aid to people who want to simplify their investment plans. So if you're investing in the context of a 401k, certainly you'll typically find one of these uh, target date lineups on offer, but you could also invest in a target date fund inside of an IRA. When we look at the data on target date funds, we see a really pleasing pattern where investors tend to make their contributions and then just kind of sit tight. Um, I sometimes hear criticisms that target date funds are too expensive or they're not right for everyone. But the good news is that when we look at asset flows to target date funds, we actually see that the assets are really flowing to the very low cost options. So consider an all-in-one fund like that. If you're investing for college in a 529 college savings plan, you'll also typically have the option to invest in an aged based sort of plan that allows you to kind of extricate yourself from the maintenance equation where the account is just gradually getting more conservative as your child gets close closer to matriculation. So those are great hands-off options for people who really don't want to do any ongoing oversight. Now, what about for investors who maybe want a little bit more control over their asset allocation than a target date or another type of managed portfolio might offer? What should they be considering? Here, I think broad market index funds or exchange traded funds can make a ton of sense. Taylor Larimore, who's one of the leading lights of the Bogleheads movement, wrote a whole book about the three fund portfolio, which is total U.S. market, total international stock, total bond market. And the idea is that with those three basic building blocks, you can cover the total U.S. international and bond markets. And so I think that that is a great and elegant solution. You might consider adding a few additional components, maybe treasury inflation protected securities if you're retired. But definitely those uh, broad market index funds can provide a lot of diversification. Expenses are really, really low on the big ones. So this is a terrific option for investors who would like to have just a little bit more control over their asset allocation frameworks. And then lastly, Christine, if you do want to take have this sort of hands-off portfolio, how often should you really be checking in on it? I think a good once annual review is plenty for most investors, possibly twice a year if you want to be a little bit more active. But any more than that, uh, to me, runs the risk of doing a little bit too much active management, a little bit too much active oversight. You can ac accomplish a lot in a great year-end portfolio review where you're checking up on tax matters, uh, you're checking up on your contributions over the past year, your withdrawals over the past year if you're retired. You're checking up on your asset allocation. But I don't think you need to spend much more uh, than, than a good once annual review or possibly twice a year at mid-year if you're so inclined. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today and for these tips about how we can all be a little bit more hands-off with our portfolios. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. 
I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, here is what the top money managers like about Alphabet, Microsoft, and Comcast. Today, we're looking at three stocks that were among the top 10 holdings of our Ultimate Stock Pickers last quarter. Who are the Ultimate Stock Pickers? The Ultimate Stock Pickers are a collection of 26 different investment managers who we think are among the best in the industry. We review their portfolios each quarter to uncover new investment ideas. Not all of these stocks are undervalued today, but they're fine watch list candidates. First up is Alphabet. Alphabet dominates the online search market with Google's global share above 80%, via which it generates strong revenue growth and cash flow. We expect continuing growth in the firm's cash flow, and we remain confident that Google will maintain its leadership in the search market. We foresee YouTube contributing more to the firm's top and bottom lines, and we view investments of some of that cash in moonshots as attractive. Whether they will generate positive returns remains to be seen, but they do present significant upside. We think shares are worth $2,925 each. Next is Microsoft. Microsoft has reinvented itself into a cloud leader. In our view, Microsoft has become one of two public cloud providers that can deliver a wide variety of platform-as-a-service and infrastructure-as-a-service solutions at scale. Additionally, Microsoft has accelerated the transition from a traditional perpetual license model to a subscription model. The company has also embraced the open source movement. Finally, Microsoft exited the low-growth, low-margin mobile handset business and is driving gaming to be more cloud-based. These factors have combined to drive a more focused company that offers impressive revenue growth with high and expanding margins. We think shares are worth $278. And finally, there's Comcast. Comcast's core cable business, which accounts for more than half of the firm's value, enjoys significant competitive advantages. The NBC Universal acquisition has added shareholder value, in our view, through a combination of a reasonable purchase price and strong execution. Moreover, Comcast has steadily gained market share over its primary competitors, phone companies like AT&T and Verizon, as high-quality internet access has become a staple utility in more households. With a network that can be upgraded at modest incremental cost, we expect internet access share will continue to shift in Comcast's favor, enabling the firm to gain additional scale efficiencies. We assign Comcast a fair value of $56 per share. Next, find out why our analysts like DoorDash and SoFi Technologies. Our stock analysts brought two recent IPOs under coverage. First is DoorDash. Consumers use DoorDash's app to order food for pickup or delivery from restaurants. DoorDash holds the number one position as an online food order aggregator in the U.S., ahead of Uber Eats and Grubhub. DoorDash is in the early stages of trying to attract a larger piece of what we estimate could be $1 trillion worth of goods and services by 2025 to its platform. DoorDash benefits from the network effects between merchants, deliverers, and consumers, plus intangible assets in the form of data. We assign DoorDash a narrow economic moat rating and a fair value estimate of $142 per share. Next is SoFi Technologies. 
In our view, SoFi has found an unfilled product need in the marketplace. SoFi uses its mobile app and website to target young, high-income individuals that may be underserved by traditional full-service banks. Unlike other digital banking companies, which generally have limited product offerings, SoFi offers a full suite of financial services and products that includes everything from student loans to estate planning, positioning the company as a digital one-stop shop for financial services. While the breadth of SoFi's product offerings is impressive, the company has used partnerships to speed up deployment of new products. As a result, SoFi faces the risk that a rival firm could use a similar methodology to replicate its model. For now, though, SoFi has been able to use its first-mover advantage and substantial reward spending to drive rapid growth. We assign SoFi Technologies a $20.50 per share fair value estimate and a no-moat rating. And lastly, Susan Jabinski talks with Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Two of Vanguard's dividend stock funds recently announced changes to their target indices. Here to discuss what these types of changes mean for index fund investors is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Susan. Now, how common is it for passive funds to change their target indices? Well, despite what the word passive might have an investor believe, what we see is that among index funds, index changes, either wholesale changes or or modifications to index methodologies, are far more common than one might think. And they've affected every fund from the very oldest index mutual fund, the Vanguard 500, which has gone back from kind of Istanbul to Constantinople, the S&P 500, to a, a homespun version of the S&P 500 uh, you know, during its, its long lifespan, to you know, more recently, things like thematic funds. One example at the extreme was a Latin American real estate fund that went to bed one night and woke up the next morning as a cannabis fund. So, Investors need to be cognizant of the fact that despite the fact that they're investing in nominally passive funds, what we see underneath the surface is is a lot of activity, be it just manifest in the index methodology itself or changes to that index methodology, or as we've seen in a number of cases recently, wholesale changes to the index. So then what are the implications for investors, Ben, if they do own a fund that changes its target index? Well, it's really going to vary and it's it's going to vary by sort of the degree of of materiality of of either the index change on the one hand or the change to the index itself. So the example I mentioned before, uh, a Latin American real estate ETF that is effectively repurposed to use a a term that is often used within the industry to become a, a cannabis fund. For all intents and purposes, changes of, of that magnitude are effectively equivalent to a manager or strategy change that you might see in an actively managed portfolio. Investors who wanted exposure to Latin American real estate might not care to have exposure to cannabis stocks. Uh, Now, on the other end of the continuum, what you see is that we've seen a growing number of kind of more minor, uh, less material modifications to index methodologies. So if you go back to example to late 2017 and look at the CRISP family of U.S. stock indexes, which are notable because they underpin many of 
Vanguard's mainline index funds and ETFs, what that index family did at that point in time was move from rebalancing the index portfolio in one day to spreading rebalancing trades over a five-day period. Now, that's a more modest tweak. Uh, In many cases, it probably didn't even register with investors. They might be finding this out for the first time here as, as I'm saying it. Um, so there's, there's really a continuum in, in how investors should you know, respond, what they should understand. You know, it, it's really going to vary depending on where on that continuum, either this index change or this modification to an index's methodology might reside. So let's talk a little bit specifically about the changes at these Vanguard funds. Um, it's Vanguard Dividend Depreciation and Vanguard International Dividend Depreciation uh, both changed their target indices. So walk us through what the changes were and what in these specific cases these changes mean for the fund holders. Yeah, so this is an interesting kind of hybrid case because what we've seen is, is a combination of both an index change as well as a a refinement to the methodology of of these funds prior indexes. So the two funds will switch to new benchmarks effective in the third quarter of 2021. Now these new indexes, which are S&P dividend growers indexes, look awfully similar to their current benchmarks, which are NASDAQ benchmarks. Now they retain many of the same key attributes, specifically, very stringent criteria on dividend durability. So they're looking for stocks that have grown their dividends over a long period of time, which is what gives them their quality bent, which is one of the key points of appeal that we've long lauded for both of these funds. That remains untouched. What we see really modified at the margin is first and foremost, there's a greater degree of transparency in the methodologies for these new S&P indexes which was a a bit of a a, a sort of rub with the old NASDAQ indexes. So in their methodology, uh, there was a a bit of a black box sentence that said there were certain proprietary criteria that that benchmark, those benchmarks used to screen out certain stocks. What we see in what is fully transparent with these new S&P benchmarks is that once they've arrived at their eligible universe of stocks, they're weeding out those that have particularly high yields, which oftentimes can be value traps. They might be stocks who, for whatever reason, have fallen on tough times, whose dividends might not be sustainable, which isn't what investors want in a strategy that's aiming for durable dividends. So we see that with full transparency now in this new methodology, which is great. The other key modification is is really, I think, a recognition of the heft of these funds, which together have tens of billions of investors' money um, sitting in them as as we sit here today. So the new indexes are more sort of turnover conscious. They're more cautious. They're going to tread more lightly. So they're looking at and weighting stocks by not just their market cap, but their float-adjusted market capitalization. So focusing on the portion of stock shares that are actually available to be readily traded in the market. The other important modification we see is that both indexes are going from rebalancing over the course of one day to a three-day rebalancing period, which spreads trades out over a longer duration, which mitigates the potential impact that those trades might have on the prices 
of the stocks that they're either going to be buying or going to be selling, which is very important now that because during any given rebalance, there could be billions of dollars of money moving in one direction or another when these portfolios look to remove existing constituents and refresh with new ones. So all told, we, we view these modifications very favorably. And, and this is a hybrid of those situations that I described earlier. It's an index change. And it's also a refinement to the methodology that investors have adhered to and, and benefited from to date. So given these changes to these funds, Ben, have we made any changes to our analyst ratings of them? So we've taken a close look at, at the new indexes uh, really under sort of the umbrella of our assessment of the funds process. So index methodology is, is really synonymous with process when we're looking at index tracking funds. And in the case of both the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation Index Fund and its international cousin, we've reaffirmed both our process pillar ratings as well as our overall ratings, which are gold for the US fund and silver for the international fund. As I mentioned before, we, we really like these refinements at the margin. Uh, we laud the incremental transparency of the new S&P indexes. And given the fund's size, again, tens of billions of dollars now sitting in these funds, we think being cautious, taking a more um, measured approach to turning over the portfolio is, is absolutely warranted. So we've reaffirmed our, our medalist ratings for both of these funds. Well, Ben, thank you for your perspective today. We appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.